Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, welcome back to The Bunker for Start Your Week, where we set up what's happening in the next seven days, or at least what we can reasonably predict will happen in the next seven days. I'm Andrew Harrison, and up at the crack of dawn with me, I've got Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Hi, Andrew. I'm very well, thank you. How was the weekend? Packed with incidents and excitement, as usual? Yes. <laughs> as, as usual, during lockdown, I had a very exciting weekend. No, it was, it was just being locked down. <laughs> yes, there you go. Hence the name. So finally... It's inauguration week. On Wednesday, Joe Biden will be sworn in as America's 46th president. Uh, the country is bracing itself for further violence after the invasion of the Capitol. Some 25,000 mm. National Guard have been deployed in Washington. But turnouts at far-right rallies at state capitals over the weekend was reportedly quite sparse. And there was mm. a, a sad tale or two of, so I, I turned up for democracy, but it, I'm just a lonely lone wolf. <laughs> Are you expecting there to be the, 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 the spasm of violence that we're... Uh, that we've, that we've been told, or, or might it be a little less climactic? Look, I'm, I'm sure that there will be some unrest, uh, especially at state level, because it's just too many federal buildings to protect, isn't there? I, I, I think Washington feels like it's been closed down too effectively and for too long uh, a, a period. I mean, I, I take heart from the fact that these people are not the brightest. Um, you know, they're the same people who posted photos of themselves breaking the law and social media in onesies, um, yes. which I guess shouldn't be surprising <laughs> considering that, you know, they still support someone who told them to inject Drano. They don't concern me, to be honest. They, they are more heat than light. I am much more frightened of the person among them who has the organizational wherewithal and intelligence to sit down on Wednesday and plan mm. calmly and methodically what he might do in six months what government building he might bomb or college he might shoot up. He concerns me because he sees himself as a lone soldier and he's not chatting about it on parlor. Um, so he's much more difficult to pick up. And and so I think what what we need to do is get over the buildup of this as a very dramatic moment where violence will either erupt or go away forever, because mm. I think what what Trump has created is a long tail of violence to come. Yeah, I'm clinging to the uh, the idea that they're mostly that woman who invaded the Capitol and then streamed it on Facebook, advertising her real estate services. <laughs> More of that. That's what that, that's what less less of the uh, actual actual tactical gear. I mean, the strange thing about it is it's been almost constructed as a way to to confirm. The, the deep state fantasy you know if if there is yes, violence, and if yes. there is violence and it has to be put down well that proves that the deep state is oppressing us if protest doesn't happen it's because the deep state prevented it everything bends to confirm the original yes every, every conspiracy is confirmed by some new enclave of the conspiracy but it, you know look this is a historic moment and it is the story that will dominate the the week coming up 
overall, without a shadow of a doubt, because it is a huge moment, I think, for moderates everywhere. But what we have to do is get over the notion that Trump is an aberration. And, I, you know, that's what's making me feel uncomfortable. We are desperate to see him as unusual, as a blip. But I don't think Trump is unusual at all. I think he's every bully I've ever met. He's every wife beater, every racist, every homophobe. He is every violent, drunk hooligan at a sport event. He, You know, he is Biff from Back to the Future and Negan from Walking Dead. The difference is that... This one happened to ride a wave of reality TV that glorifies exactly this kind of person. And that might sound flippant, but I am entirely serious. Without a show like The Apprentice, you don't get a president like Trump. And so I think it is time for a little bit of introspection, for a little bit of how did we get here. There is great desperation for catharsis, though, isn't there? People want Mm. to be able to say, thank God that's over, even if it isn't over. They need they need that moment, which uh, ideally, even if not entirely copper bottomed and authentic, the the uh, the inauguration will at least provide that the sense that yes, you know, this episode is over, this season, if you want, is over. Um, but but there are seasons to come, I think, and and you know a lot will fall on how quickly Biden gets to grip with things you know he he's uh, we hear reportedly uh, ha- has a huge raft of executive orders to come straight away as he he comes in some of them are uh, covid related although actually federal powers are limited in those terms but he can do things like uh, he he plans to extend pandemic-related limits on evictions or loan repayments, or um, he plans to make rules uh, for mask wearing mandatory on federal property and interstate travel. And all those things will help, I think, set the right tone. Um, the the biggest executive order among them, I think, is the the one that uh, rejoins the Paris Climate. Yeah on behalf of the United States. I think that's huge. And then there's other, you know, significant ones, but in smaller areas, but of highly symbolic uh, nature, like ordering uh, agencies to reunite children, uh, migrant children with their families if they've been separated, uh, rescinding the Muslim travel ban, things like that. I think all of that can create a, a, a feeling that... We are back to sanity, which yeah. uh, which will be hugely important to American people as they deal with this pandemic. It is actually like a season ender, isn't it? It's like it's like a season ender of Doctor Who, where they press the big red reset button and everything <laughs> winds back. Um, do you think that that, that message that um, you know, America is 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 back to sanity will be easily received around the world? I mean, other things, including rejoining the Iran nuclear deal and overturning the Muslim travel ban. Do you think the the world will accept that? Yes, because I think because I think the world is desperate for that and has been desperate for that for some time. So you know, if the world can fantasize about Trump becoming more statesmanlike with you know every day that went by of his four four years term, I think the world is right to fantasize that a new president will make 
a big difference. I picked up on one story um, that I want to mention to do with this uh, in a in a related but ancillary way, and this is apparently that a, a, a burgeoning market for pardons well yes now exists in the, it's incredible in the states so it's sort of the the access peddling and uh, and clientism that has characterized the trump administration meeting his immoral approach to clemency and so lobbyists some of them former prosecutors are, are charging people tens of thousands of dollars in order to plead their case to Trump. And according to the New York Times, this includes uh, socialites convicted of fraud or tax evasion, the son of a former senator, and the founder of dark web drug marketplace, Silk Road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I love it. I, you know, I love that as a story because I think that is Trump's associates reverting to business mode. So when the cash cow is dead you sell it for dog food. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what they seem to be doing. Well, we've got uh, two and a half more days of the Trump presidency. And you know what? Say say what you like, Alex. He's consistent. (laughs) He is at least consistent. (laughs) I mean, Rudy Giuliani is involved in this. That New York Times story, which is remarkable, includes slightly disputed talk of him offering pardons for $2 million. I know. there's There's a rate card. Well, like I said, you know, when the when the uh, career is over, you monetize it. Absolutely. So it's, he's like a beloved celebrity that is now looking for endorsements from uh, from anyone, including sort of dodgy second mortgage companies. It's the convention circuit where you sell autographs for a hundred dollars. Yes. That yes. um, there are more serious questions on what might happen in the remaining. What is it? 72 hours, slightly less than 72 hours of the Trump presidency. There's a question of whether he will or will attempt to pardon himself, which is a massive legal grey area. Nobody knows whether he can do it, but but the fact that uh, things are not legally permissible has never stopped him doing anything in the past. There, there are two counterweighing forces in that, aren't there? Because it feels to me like Trump would like nothing like uh, more than a a big public show trial um, over the next three years in the sort of uh, American capital. My sense is that he's not going to do that because that will be a move that will make him look afraid uh, Mm. and make him look like he wants to be out of the limelight. And I think he doesn't. He wants to be in the limelight. So while he is a coward, I think the part of himself that that wants to swagger and say, come and have a go, will be too strong. Yeah, and there's nothing going to be happening with impeachment until until after, or the impeachment trial, rather, because he has been impeached, and that that can't be undone. The impeachment trial won't take place until after Biden's in it. Yes, and of course, the impeachment trial, listeners must understand, won't find him guilty of criminal offences it may find him guilty of the things that are being alleged and bar him from ever holding public office again, although that is a distinct legal point, whether you can do that after a term has finished. But he would then need to be charged separately by Washington prosecutors with criminal charges, if that makes sense, in order for that to happen. So the Senate can't find him 
um, you know, guilty of a criminal offence and send him to prison. That can't happen. It would have to go to a to a proper court. And I think that extra step, I doubt whether it will take place. I think they will get him for fraud in New York and Florida, and they might get him for uh, interfering with an election in Georgia, but I think it will happen at state level. Mm. I just can't see this ending without some episode of massive sulk. Apparently he wants military bands and a crowd and a send-off. Well, There's got to be some massive sulk. As Comey said over the weekend, let him you know, stand on the front lawn of Mar-a-Lago and shout at passing cars in his bathrobe. Um, but <laughs> it, it's gonna be that we don't kid. need to be there to hear it. No, it's going to be that little kid from the famous photograph, the one where he's just howling at the little kid on the, on the White House. Lawn. Yeah. It's going to be that forever, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Although, let's move on with a reason to be cheerful. Fox News has lost 20% of its ratings since Election Day, and CNN is now the most watched cable news uh, source in the United States. And it's not just because all the right-wing viewers are moving to Newsmax and OAN. Apparently, the, the biggest influencer is uh, news fatigue. Yes, I Which think I feel that, I'm suffering from myself. There will be some churn, won't there? Um, as people sort of wander around shopping for who will tell them more of the, the narrative they want to hear. And obviously, if uh, Trump and family decide to launch some sort of media enterprise, that will sort of play heavily into it. Trump Shopping Network. Yes. Ring, ring now for your pardon. <laughs> for your um, my pillow. And <laughs> <laughs> at home this week, the first mandatory review of lockdown uh, is supposed to take place on Wednesday. We're not expecting any change, are we? Things are going to proceed as as have proceeded so far. Yes, I think I, I don't think there will be with the numbers as they are at the moment, and everyone, every single person from the NHS that I've, I watched being interviewed in the last week is looking scared, yes, like genuinely scared. And I think MPs understand something that maybe some of the more COVID-skeptic supporters don't, and that is that the death rate dramatically shoots up the moment NHS capacity is exceeded. So you you basically get a slide, you get a curve going upwards up until the point where it exceeds that line of NHS capacity, and then you get a very steep exponential curve um, in people dying after that because literally the NHS won't have the capacity to treat people. They won't have the capacity to take people off the ambulances. It's as simple as that. So if we're expecting things to intensify this week, and Sir Stuart Stevens looks genuinely, as you say, genuinely concerned mm. uh, at the weekend, obviously lockdown is a, is a secondary consideration compared to actual deaths. How, how do you think that, that this trajectory of cases and deaths is likely to affect the debate? Because, I mean, what last week was all about, you know, COVID deniers, not COVID deniers, lockdown deniers sort of being you know, dra- being dragged out into the light and made to account for themselves. How do we think it's going to proceed this week? That depends on how the numbers are behaving at the, at the front end of this, as it were. So the number of infections. If the number of infections is seen to be coming down, then inevitably the number of admissions and deaths follows weeks after that. So I don't think the government will react to things getting worse in the NHS, provided that the numbers going into the system 
are beginning to come down. If they don't begin to come down, I think we might see an escalation of measures. I think we might see even tougher measures. I think we might see the banning of going out even for exercise. I think we might see the closing of essential businesses or the reduction to a skeleton staff. I think we might see the cancellation of click and collect services. There are still bits and bobs that the government can do to bear down on this even more strongly. It's an interesting week in the Commons. There's an opposition day debate today. There are two motions. There's one relating to universal credit, how that is being used uh, during the pandemic and the fact that the extra support is running out at the end of March, which is fast approaching. There's also an opposition day debate on access to remote education, um, which is obviously a very, very hot topic at the moment. Then on Tuesday, the trade bill comes back to the Commons after it's been knocked about in the Lords a little bit. And that will be a very interesting debate because we've seen over the weekend quite a lot of stories breaking about how Rishi Sunak has been given uh, the sort of portfolio to make this country Singapore on Thames, as if that would be a good thing. So I think we may get quite a lot of those arguments being rehearsed during the trade bill debate. And then there's a very interesting thing coming up on Wednesday, which is uh, there will be a discussion on the building safety fund. So it's two and a half years since Grenfell, which was June 2017. And there are still thousands of buildings up and down the country, high rises, which are clad in that same flammable cladding. And, you know, the government has failed completely in uh, creating a scheme that means all of that gets replaced straight away. I cannot imagine what it must be to sleep in a flat in a you know on a on a high floor in a property like that with your kids, knowing that a spark anywhere on the floors beneath might create another Grenfell. I I don't understand. I mean, it's a drop in the ocean financially, considering the shitstorm going on at the moment and would actually create a lot of jobs. So I just do not understand why the government do not put their hand in their pocket and say, here's a fucking billion, fix it all. Because Jenrick's busy with statues, that's why. Yeah. Get real, Alex, defending statues. Just to rewind on a couple of those things you mentioned there, the, the universal credit uh, increase, the £20 increase that came in at the start of lockdown, uh, the government is trying to withdraw that. And simultaneously, the uh, attempts to wind back or remove or diversion EU employment rights since Brexit, the uh, the end of the 48, the plan, mm. we've got to go to the FT, the plan is to uh, end the 48-hour working week, change the rules around rest breaks at work, and not include overtime pay when calculating some holiday pay entitlements. How does any of this connect with levelling up? I mean, it's, uh, it's bad politics in the short term, because in the wake of the food boxes fiasco, it just looks continually tin-eared, cruel, ideological, and uninterested. But in the longer, the longer to, to medium to longer term, how does this fit with the as yet undefined levelling up anyway? It doesn't fit, and it won't fit because it won't happen. Um, I think the government is in such a 
a deep hole right now, they need to somehow look forward to fictional future successes. They can't afford to have people looking at what is happening to the economy right now, what is happening in the pandemic right now, what is happening to borders right now, what is happening to Northern Ireland, to fishermen, to, you know, any industry you care to look at. They can't afford people to start looking at the microeconomies of marketplaces, which I know from personal experience are a nightmare at the moment. Um, So they need to create a point in the future where good things are coming. But they won't do it because actually the deal they've signed means that if they reduce workers' rights in any significant way, instantly the EU can slap them with tariffs after, you know, uh, a period of mediation. Um, So they won't do that, but they will talk about doing it. They will tout this great bonfire of red tape, even as red tape increases on every business in the country because of Brexit. This is pure and simple gaslighting. Yeah, I've noticed that the continuing refrain that every single, every industry that identifies the new problems, the new non-tariff problems, everything from small businesses exporting and importing to fishermen, everything is dismissed as, well, it's just, a, that's just one case. Uh, it's yes, it's a blip. Yeah. It's a blip. It doesn't really count. Focus on the big picture. Well, the yeah, big yeah. picture never seems to arrive. Where you know they, they can't even make a case for the big picture. And and the other interesting thing over the last few days has been the pivot of right wing Brexit supporting papers. Firstly, in shaking their pom poms in a in a just shameful way at this stuff being briefed by number 10 about Rishi being given the the brief to uh, to cut red tape without the minimal level of scrutiny of whether this is true whether this can happen what it does to the deal we just signed as i was just explaining nothing you know the telegraph the sun and the mail just reproduce the the release that Downing Street gives them. But also, interestingly, how, you know, as I've said before, everything is project fear right up until the moment when it becomes either what people voted for or the fault of the EU. So there were a lot, there was a headline in the Telegraph that that screamed, we Brexiteers are being blamed for the problems we warned about. So there's this complete reversal of, oh, we said, we said this would happen and no one would listen. And that it's somehow to do with this government cocking it up, as if this government has nothing to do with Brexiters, even though it consists of the leaders of the movement. There was a Sun piece today, which was just astonishing by Tony Parsons, I think. Um, I don't believe you, Alex. Tony Parsons' pieces are always brilliant. Seriously, it talks about the the sandwich that got confiscated uh, Mm. at the Dutch border. And literally by the third paragraph, so after it's described the incident, the first argument about it is how, and I quote, in the winter of 1945, 
when the <laughs> Dutch people were starving under Nazi occupation, RFA, RAF Lancasters bravely flew low to drop food parcels. So I think we will see a lot more of that. We will see a lot more of the uh, ramping up of the rhetoric and blaming Europe for everything. I mean, that article is just extraordinary. It talks about how British people will be penalised by being switched to the to the queues with longer waits at airports just because they don't have an EU passport. And it completely circumvenes the fact that, you know, the ham sandwich being confiscated, the longer queues at airports are the result of the deal the government this newspaper supports just signed. They simply expect the Europeans not to apply the deal we just agreed. That's Alexandreo reading Tony Parsons, so you don't have to. <laughs> Alex, thanks for joining us to start, start your week. We'll be back tomorrow with an inauguration week edition of the panel show. And of course, there are more dailies every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. We hope you enjoyed yesterday's surprise bonus edition with John Curtis telling Naomi about a possible post-pandemic political consensus. If you missed it, have a listen now. And why not subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss any of these episodes? We've got some big names coming up this week, so uh, you might want to treat yourself. Alex, thanks for getting up early and joining me. Thank you, Andrew. See you soon. Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow in the bunker. The Bunker Daily, produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Listener.